This is Ted Mills from the Office of Gift Planning at Princeton University. You're listening to the podcast of our Reunions 2012 program, Smart Giving, Getting the Most from Your Philanthropy, recorded on June 2, 2012. Philanthropy has made Princeton what it is today, and the goal of the Princeton Gift Planning team is to educate alumni and friends about philanthropy. In this podcast, you'll hear about the advantages and disadvantages and features of foundations, donor-advised funds, and community foundations and the importance of selecting the right charitable vehicle for you, your giving preferences, and your tax situation. On the podcast, you'll hear from Victoria Bjorklin, class of 73, a partner at Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett, where she founded and heads the firm's Exec Organizations Group. She represents donor-advised funds, foundations, and philanthropists. You'll hear from John Eady, class of 66, who is a recently retired director at PricewaterhouseCoopers, where he worked with the Exempt Organizations Tax Services Division, heading up outreach and services to private foundations. He also spent many years as a Senior Vice President and General Counsel of the Council on Foundations. You'll also hear from Juanita James, Class of 74, our moderator for this program, who is the President and CEO of the Fairfield County Community Foundation. She has a distinguished corporate career and also Princeton was fortunate to have her leadership as a member of the Board of Trustees for 11 years. Enjoy the recording. Thank you again for the lovely introduction. I must admit that from of all of the panelists here, I must uh, I am the least experienced in terms of having only been in my role uh, for seven months. So I'm the rookie and Victoria and John are the, uh, the pros here. I did have a wonderful experience at Princeton. I remember... Um, more than the classes, I hate to say, I remember the parties. <laughs> I remember uh, being a DJ at WPRB Radio and uh, how much fun that was uh, and the, just the freedom and, and the, the community. Uh, having come from Brooklyn, New York, uh, this was quite a different type of experience for me, living in this type of community. Um, I fell in love with the campus itself and uh, the opportunities to uh, just explore ideas uh, was a wonderful, uh, transforming, it was a transformative experience for me. And so um, then one, one of the things that happened at Princeton, initially I got involved in the Princeton Community House Program, which is still alive and well and thriving today. And I went from being a very shy, um, and really afraid to be away from home. My first semester, I went home every weekend because I just couldn't get adjusted to life away from home. And by the end of my, as soon as I started working with that community house program, I got connected with the community. I felt like I had a purpose. And my first summer, I didn't go home. I stayed on Princeton's campus and worked with the Princeton Community House and Youth Center summer program for the entire summer. So when I say transformative in every way uh, imaginable, but that was the thing about Princeton. My first involvement was as a freshman uh, when I got involved with the campus fund drive. So the roots of philanthropy were sown very, very early in my life. And, uh, it, and it, it just has continued ever since. Uh, when my husband and I moved to Stamford, Connecticut, we immediately got involved in a number of activities in our local community uh, to the point where between the two of us, I think we've served on something like 15 different um, local community boards um, and charitable organizations, including uh, the Child Care Learning Centers, the library, and any number of things. But the roots were planted definitely here. So professionally, I started out with my, with my degree from Princeton in Romance Languages at um, Time Inc. at the time, it's now Time Warner, in the magazine group as a researcher, and then uh, stayed with that organization for 20 years, <clears throat> moved, and finally left uh, to go to the Doubleday Book Clubs. When I left Time Inc., I was at the Book of the Month Club, running the editorial portfolio for all of the book clubs at Book of the Month Club. And then I left to go to the Doubleday Book Clubs. So um, <clears throat> somewhere back in the 1990s, I made a career transition from the world of publishing to Pitney Bowes, and I eventually retired from Pitney Bowes as their chief marketing and communications officer um, a couple of years ago, and then I decided I would pursue full-time my love of philanthropy and community service work 
uh, by accepting the position as the CEO of the uh, Fairfield County Community Foundation. So it's been quite a journey for me, um, personally, professionally, and it's delighted, I am delighted to be here. So let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to uh, talk about today. The first thing is that um, we will have each of our panelists speak, and I believe that we'll have the opportunity for you to ask, ask questions at the end. Um, I think, I don't know if you necessarily need to use a microphone, because, it's, but you will. Okay, we're recording the session, so even though you, we can hear each other, because we're recording the session, we will ask you to use a microphone that will be set up uh, for you to ask questions at the end of the session. So we will be discussing charitable, um, charitable giving vehicles, including how each one works, which one is best suited to you, as well as the advantages and the disadvantages of the different vehicles. Uh, we'll also hopefully give you some tips on how to avoid pitfalls and how to apply best practices in both administration and your grant making with some example stories. And then one of the things I'm not sure we um, is discussed very often is succession planning as well as the sunsetting of your charitable giving vehicle. Uh, and um, so hopefully all of that will provide some insight and uh, interest to all of you. When it's time for questions, again, please use the microphone, and then we'll just conclude with some brief remarks. So let, before we start, let me just ask with a show of hands from the audience, um, if any of you have currently made charitable gifts through a foundation, okay, that's good, and through a donor-advised fund, great, good, thank you very much. So, I'm going to turn this over to John, and um, you can tell us um, about foundations with your considerable experience and how they work and some best practices. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Juanita. Um, I'm going to focus my first remarks on sort of the positive flexibilities of a private foundation, and later on we're going to, uh, in the presentation, we're going to talk about s some of the... Uh, potential problems and, and pitfalls and penalties you can run into. But let me talk about it uh, um, just from a, what makes it a, a really attractive option to, to families, corporations, and so forth. Um, I guess I would start by saying, of all the philanthropic options you have, uh, this one provides you with the maximum amount of private control um, within the tax rules. You put money in, you create your own board, and you make decisions with respect to investments, decisions with respect to where the funds go. There's a flip side to that, and on, when I used to make presentations for the Council on Foundations on the problems of the self-dealing rules, I would start by saying, once you put money into a pri your private foundation, it's not your money anymore. Because one of the m big mistakes that I see have seen over the years is people create a foundation, they put the money in there, and they think it's just another checkbook. They've got their personal checkbook, they've got their charitable checkbook. And if they want to do something that sounds like a good charitable activity, then they write the check out of the charitable checkbook. And as we'll see later on, there are certain pitfalls and problems there. Um, you have the maximum amount of private control. It's not your money anymore. It belongs to a legal entity, either a trust or a not-for-profit corporation, that has to live by some fairly strict rules. So long as you act exclusively for charitable purposes and play within the rules, color within the lines, then you have maximum control um, more than you would it with uh, other vehicles. So, so that's an advantage. Another way of looking at it is um, if I want maximum control, um, maximum amount or degree of control, private foundation would be the option, but the price for that is you have to live by the stricter private foundation rules. Um, we'll talk some more about that a little bit later. Um, 
some of the things that are really nice and flexible about a private foundation are that you can make grants, uh, scholarship grants, you can make grants to individuals, uh, you can make uh, research grants to individuals, you can make contributions to organizations outside the United States who are not recognized by the Internal Revenue Service, um, you can employ family members, um, you can even make grants to organizations that are not charities so long as it's for a charitable purpose. But all of those things, grants to individuals, grants outside the United States, grants to non-charities, employing family members, all of those things can be done, but you have to be very careful how you do them because uh, uh, there are specific requirements and due diligence uh, uh, requirements that you have to follow. Um, as long as you um, learn them, work with a good advisor, all of those things are possible. Um, you can, we were going to talk a little bit about best practices. Um, you obviously can create a private foundation during your lifetime. You can also create a, a foundation at death through a bequest, or you can do both. Uh, the most successful, some of the most successful family foundations I've seen have been started during lifetime. Um, it's, uh, I think the main advantage there is that the the, um, it's usually a, a husband and wife who form it, um, not always, but you can get the foundation up and running in its traditions and its uh, purposes and its mission statements and its experience all gets honed and, and structured before, before death and so that you have a, a, a strong uh, base and understanding that will hopefully carry on the way you would hope uh, after uh, after you pass away, so um, let me stop there. Um, that's uh, it's a wonderful vehicle. Uh, there's um, tens of thousands of them in the United States, and in a few more minutes, we'll talk about how too many of them get into trouble. So I'm going to tell you that private foundations are fabulous if you have the sufficient amount of money and patience and advice to deal with them. But if you would like to get 95% of what you can get with a private foundation with a lot less administrative hassle and help in administering this giving, and you give primarily to public charities, then you really should consider the donor-advised fund. Because Gene Sterley has who's an economist in this field, has described the donor-advised fund as the democratization of philanthropy. It is the private foundation for the rest of us, but you're giving to a public charity and you recommend gifts from that public charity to the charities that you want to support. So you have your own segregated account. It can be set up with as little as $5,000, and you can use it going forward for recommending grants as often as you want to. The Donor Advised Fund has been around since 1931. It is not a new giving vehicle. Its traditional home has been at the approximately 650 community foundations around the country. In the late 80s, certain uh, mutual fund companies also became involved by creating donor-advised funds that had very sophisticated technological platforms. These are public charities, but they are uh, administered by companies that had all the computer wherewithal to make this available. And now many, many, many community foundations also use that same technology. And then there are independent donor-advised funds that aren't affiliated with either a community foundation or a mutual fund company. And they may be, for example, at a university or a religious group or the Rotary International, or some other kind of organization. So there are now thousands of organizations. The new statistics that came out last week show that there are $24.2 billion now in donor-advised funds. And they give out at a much higher level than private foundations do, which 
is just a statistical notation. Private foundations have to give away annually 5% of their assets. People using donor-advised funds tend to be giving at a higher rate, perhaps 15 to 25% a year, and you can keep replenishing both the private foundation and the donor-advised fund. So when do I use donor-advised funds? I happen to have a donor-advised fund. Hank and I set one up because we're very heavy charitable givers. We're in, I work in the charitable field. We give away a significant portion of our income. But when I retire, we're not going to have the same income level. So we're pre-funding a donor-advised fund so that when we're both retired, we'll be able to continue to give at a higher level than our current income would then otherwise allow us to do by pre-funding it, and then we'll start making grants at a heavy level after retirement. When the proverbial truck hits the proverbial person, I hate to say it, but I've actually had that case, in the old days, people would say, the funeral is tomorrow, which is set up a foundation so that we can have people contribute to a, a fund in honor of Mary. Well, it's very hard to set up a private foundation, and you can't qualify it in one day, for sure. But you can set up a donor-advised fund in one day, so you can announce at the funeral that gifts in Mary's memory can may, be made to the donor-advised fund. And then long after the grieving period, the family and others can work together on how to advise those grants out. And if you do not want the hassle of administering a private foundation, and I mention that because a New York Times study two years ago found that the number one complaint that people had about private foundations was the hassle. I see some heads nodding. Well, this is true because John is 100% correct. You have to be paying attention at all times to where those boundaries are, or you can have inadvertent self-dealing. But if you would like somebody like Juanita and her organization to help you with all of that and to do all the back office stuff for you, then you want a donor advised fund. Because what you would do is email to Juanita's organization, I would like to make a $30,000 grant to Doctors Without Borders, and they will take care of it all for you, including all of the paperwork. So all you are doing after you fund is making a recommendation as to how you want your investments uh, handled for your fund. You don't own the money. They are the legal owner of the money, but you give investment allocation recommendations and grant recommendations. Also, at the end of the line, it's very easy. You just spend out the fund, and you don't have to worry about going through a dissolution procedure. In your materials, you are going to find this little chart, which also shows you that giving to a donor-advised fund, because it must be sponsored by a public charity, allows you maximum deductibility. Giving to a private foundation, as the chart shows, has slightly less uh, advantage if you are giving something like closely held stock or some other asset for which you might not get a full fair market value deduction uh, for a gift to a donor advised fund. There is a hedge fund manager in New York by the name of Leon Cooperman who has gone public with the fact that he accidentally gave hedge fund interests to a private foundation not realizing that he would get a basis-only deduction. He lost a $65 million deduction last year. If he had given that same $65 million worth of hedge fund interest to a donor-advised fund, he would have gotten the full fair market value $65 million deduction. So it's really important to know and think about what you have to give before you make that contribution, and a little planning can go a long way in your deductibility. So I'll stop there. Let me just add real quickly is if you, if you set up a donor-advised fund, um, all of the assets and the reporting and the IRS requirements for uh, an annual tax return are done by the Community Foundation because it's part of the Community Foundation. It's part of their return. But if you have a private foundation, you have to do a no matter what size it is, you have to do a, a separate uh, um, tax return every year.
And um, to talk a little bit more about the community foundation model, um, in addition to the foundation uh, setting up donor advised funds, you know, our fees, are generally your community foundation fees will be slightly higher. I mean, they'll be competitive with some of the more commercial vehicles, but they may not have some of the same discounts. And a, a, a large reason that people will put their donor advised funds with a community foundation um, is partially because of the expertise you get with your community foundation about the charities that you may want to designate funds to. So if you have a particular field of interest, let's say it's education, or it might be about the environment, chances are um, your community foundation has strong relationships with the grantee organizations in your area. Uh, at the Fairfield Community Found County Community Foundation, for example, we have relationships with more than 2,000 of local charities in the um, Fairfield County area, which is comprised of 23 towns and cities. Um, the advantage, the reason our donors work with us is because we have a very rigorous diligence process about these charitable organizations. How much of their giving is actually going to direct service? How well managed are they? How financially strong are they? Um, what's the impact of their programs? In order for them to have a relationship with us, we actually have a very thorough process to vet these charitable organizations to make sure that the work they're doing is, is, is deriving results and the impact that we want them to. And that's what the donors value in working uh, through the experts within the community foundation. Uh, the other thing community foundations do often with the nonprofits is actually work with them. We run year-round seminars on financial management, donor relationship uh, management, board governance, um, and what this does is strengthen the effectiveness of the nonprofits that have an affiliation, and we help educate them so that they maintain best practices. So that would be one of the reasons people would work with a community foundation um, and put, set up their donor advised fund, because you have all of the same advantages in terms of the back office work, the administration, but you get that additional knowledge and expertise uh, about the organizations that you may want to designate to. But Juanita, let's say, I agree 100%, but let's say somebody had giving plans in Asia, mm -hmm. for example, then they might want to have a donor advised fund at Give to Asia, just to give an example, because then the Fairfield County Community Foundation wouldn't be the right place for their donor advised fund. So, for example, my law firm, Simpson Thatcher, has offices throughout Asia, and after the tsunami and after the, the crisis in Japan with the earthquake, we wanted to make advised gifts relief into mm -hmm. Asia, and so we used a donor advised fund because we didn't want the hassle of making international grants, and they had people on the ground in Asia. Right. Similarly, as a charities law expert, I, I have an idea of the charities that I want to give to, so for me, the naked grant making to the public charities is what I'm looking for, and, and so for someone like that who just wants the naked grant making and isn't necessarily seeking the community help, then maybe a more streamlined, let's say, one of the Fidelity Schwab Vanguard type funds or one of the national donor advised funds might be a good choice, and some people have a variety. Thanks. And it's often a good idea. Many of my clients, I advise them, do direct grant making, do donor advised fund, and if they have sufficient assets and a family office or the wherewithal to handle it, a private foundation too, because there can be advantages to using each of these tools in the toolkit. Uh, Victoria is absolutely right. I think the community foundation model is much more valuable for your local or regional yeah. area in terms of the expertise that's provided. Another example where even if a donor has a particular charity that they have a passion about, there are times that they will still uh, um, uh, create a donor-designated fund um, so that that charity gets the money over time rather than give it all to them. And you know, some of the vicissitudes, as boards change, as leadership changes, uh, some donors are concerned about the ongoing 
viability and the stewardship of those funds. So with a donor-designated fund, they set it up so that this particular charity gets a certain amount every year, um, and that way, instead of giving it to them all up front. So again, uh, Victoria is right. It's a variety of uh, tools for you, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Just to give an anecdote, we had a client with a historic family homestead, and every two years, the little grassroots charity homestead would be on them, on them, on them. We need money for mowing the lawn. We need money small amounts. We worked with the local community foundation because none of the family lived in the town where the homestead was. We set up a dedicated fund administered by the community foundation, pre-funded it, and the community foundation now pays the lawn mowing bills. No donor advised fund is going to do that, but the community foundation did. So you need to look at the circumstance you have, and then you can figure out the right vehicle for addressing it. John, do you want to say something? Yes, uh, I just wanted to to throw out the notion of family engaging the family. Uh, obviously, um, this is a major part of a lot of family foundations where uh, frequently the husband and wife who create the foundation want the, their children and eventually grandchildren to be involved in, in, in philanthropic giving and, and to bring them into that. Um, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a good vehicle for that, given all, uh, if all the other pieces fit that we've been talking about. But I thought uh, we need, I might ask you, of your, the, the many donor advised funds you have, do you have um, family advisor groups how, more than just individuals or, or uh, a husband and wife? And how does that work? We actually provide one of the services we provide. There are some of our donors who come to us who ask about family advising. And there we, we really um, um, put together a concierge service, a premium service for them, where we meet with them and their entire family, um, try to understand what their giving needs are, present a lot of research findings and some of the options, and work with them to set up how they want to structure their family giving, um, how they want to name their successors, uh, do they want to have control. Many of our donors will want to make sure that they preserve the family giving to the grandchildren and, and direct the, them as successors as opposed to the actual, their children, because they feel at that point their children can make their own decisions. Um, another area that the community foundations are starting to grow in um, are field of interest funds. Uh, our largest field of interest fund is our fund for women and girls. And that is because we have a group of people who are a group of donors who are passionately interested in what is happening with the status of women, particularly those who are poor, undereducated, and what happens as a result to the children in the, those families. And through a research report that we did several years ago called Half the Sky, we created a very comprehensive study on the status of the economy, of the economic status and education on women. And as a result, uh, we've created some very um, particular initiatives and partnerships. Uh, right now, we have one with Norwalk Community College, where the foundation and the college have combined together to create a program specifically to support single mothers and to help them improve their graduation rates. So. The community foundations, in addition to doing grant making, often uh, do research projects, um, publish reports, and collaborate and work with other institutions. We partner with community colleges, with our United Way, um, with private funders and other public funders, and create a number of collaboratives around systemic issues. The Fund for Women and Girls is one example. Another is affordable housing where we now have 18 partners working in affordable housing collaborative. And the foundation itself has contributed 50% of the giving to that collaborative, but we've leveraged that um, so that we have built over 7,000 new units for in affordable housing over the last three years. That's one of those projects we would not, as a foundation, have had the wherewithal to do alone. But by convening all of the interested partner, partners and creating a collaborative, um, we've been able to have leverage our impact and our grant making to reach a much larger audience. 
and more and more of your community foundations are starting to do this type of work because they have the reach and the access to the funders, to the local governments, as well as to the charities and organizations. So that might be something else you would want to consider if there's a systemic issue, how involved is your community foundation in those larger collaboratives? Juanita, I really uh, wonder how many people here know that Princeton, in the planned giving office, provides a concierge giving service, um, and that the Princeton representatives who are here from planned giving, maybe you could raise your hands. I have actually been called upon to work with them when they're working with Princeton donors, and I don't think, because this was just rolled out on a trial basis, I don't think most people know about it, but all of you who are present in the room are welcome to call upon these staff members, and it's not necessarily just for giving to Princeton. They will help you connect with people who are like John and me on the planned giving advisory committee, not on a paying basis, but if you have a technical question that you want to run through them, we'll help you try and think about a, a question just like this. If I wanted to figure out how to do such and such in my community, Princeton, you guys are experts on this, how might I do it? So I, I put that out there for you also if you would like to try accessing that service. Certainly I know that they've gotten some very interesting and thought-provoking questions. Uh, and also they can help you navigate on giving inside Princeton. Um, I wanted to be able to give to the women's basketball program. Uh, and frankly, the vehicle for the women's basketball program has just been evolving, and I wanted to be able to do it from my donor-advised fund. You can't get any kind of return benefit, but these people are very knowledgeable, and they could tell you what kind of language do you have to put in your documents, for example, so that there's no return benefit that would be impermissible. And that could be a 10-minute conversation, no charge to you, and, and they could help you do something like that, and whether it's for Princeton or otherwise. John, you wanted to share with us some of the pitfalls? Uh, yes. Um, let me start by saying either if you have a private foundation or you're considering one, um, I strongly recommend two things, that you get basically up to speed on what the private foundation rules are, and that you absolutely find someone, a tax advisor, either at a law firm or an accounting firm, who's well-versed in the private foundation rules, and be able to work with that person to avoid uh, a number of different pitfalls. Um, the private foundation rules aren't always very logical, and it's easy to get in trouble. Um, there's a couple of uh, good publications by the Council on Foundations. One is called Family Foundations and the Law, What You Need to Know at www.cof.org, Council on Foundations. They also have a smaller brochure called uh, something like Top 10 Ways Family Foundations Get Into Trouble. Uh, they're, they're easy reads. They're written in question and answer format aimed at, at board members and staff. Uh, and you could read the Family Foundations and the Law. You could read in an hour. Uh, and when I talked with people who were thinking about forming a foundation, I said, you don't need to fully understand all the details of every one of these rules, but you need to know enough of it or have somebody working with you in a family office or uh, uh, an, an executive director of your foundation, whether it's full-time or part-time, that does have a basic understanding of the rules so that when you get into the gray area, yellow lights and red lights start flashing and you say, I need to check with our advisor before we go any further. The best private foundations, family foundations that we worked with, that I worked with over the last uh, eight years at Price Waterhouse, had that kind of a circumstance. And they never did anything that wasn't obviously okay 
without checking with us first, and they stayed out of trouble. Let me just give you a couple of examples of how you can get into trouble. The self-dealing rules, which apply to private foundations, they don't apply to community foundations. There's similar type rules that do apply to public charities, but the self-dealing rules basically say you cannot have a financial transaction with any disqualified person. A disqualified person includes every board member, every substantial contributor to the foundation, and their family members. And just to give you one example, two examples of self-dealing problems that I, I these are actual cases. Uh, a foundation, um, uh, the, the main donor to a foundation who was on the board uh, made a loan to his son to purchase a um, condominium in Brooklyn. Uh, they did it very carefully. Um, the, the interest rate was market rate. Uh, the foundation, you know, it was, could have been a perfectly good commercial loan, but um, and I don't remember what the rate was at the time, six, seven percent, something like that. But um, it was a violation of the self-dealing rules. And the penalty at that time was five percent. It's now 10 percent of the amount involved. They had to give the money back, and the son had to, who had to write a check to the Internal Revenue Service for 10 percent of the amount involved. So it, 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 was, a, it was a big check. Um, another example of self-dealing rules would be um, in leasing or renting. Uh, you've got a, a, a foundation which is growing in size and its office needs a bigger office and they say we need to, to move and a board member says, well, I've got some office space here in town. Uh, the fair market uh, rate is $30 a square foot, but I'll rent it to you for $5 a square foot. Terrific, great, great for the foundation. They enter into that lease and immediately they have a self-dealing rule because you have a financial transaction between a foundation and a disqualified person and it doesn't matter what the amount is. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a violation of the self-dealing rules. That doesn't seem logical, but um, that's, that's what happens. The other area I would like to mention um, is grant making. In your materials, there's a, well, I sometimes refer to this as the infamous ED flowchart. We call it the chimney chart. Oh, okay. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. But basically, what this is, is a diagram of Section 509 of the tax code. Uh, prior to 1969, there was no definition of a private foundation in, in the tax code. And so they wrote Section 509 called Definition of a Private Foundation. And it said, a private foundation is every Section 501c3 charity. Section 501c3 is the, for most of you know, but if, for those of you who don't, Section 501c3 is the section that, that uh, charities and foundations are created under to give them exemption from federal income tax. So the definition of a private foundation is every 501c3 charity, except Box number one, box number two, box number three, box number four is sort of odd, but basically you avoid being a private foundation if you meet the definition of a traditional organization like a church or a school in box one, uh, a gross receipts organization might be a, a uh, symphony orchestra or, or a, a, a cultural arts program that sells uh, tickets and, or publications. And then there's a, another a 501, um, the third box is supporting organizations. Those three boxes are collectively known in the tax world as public charities. And each one of them, ha anyone defined in those three boxes has created a legal entity, gone to the Internal Revenue Service and asked for Section 501c3 status to be exempt, and received a determination letter that says, we have determined that you are a, a charitable organization described in Section 501c3 and that you are not a private foundation because 
you're in box number one, box number two, or box number three. If you can't qualify in any one of those boxes, then you fall to the bottom of this chart and are a 501c3 private foundation, okay? I go through that somewhat technical detail because when you do start doing grant making, Congress essentially said, if you give a grant to any organization in box one, two, or three, that's cool. It's what I might call a safe grant. Why? They've created a legal entity. It's gone through a um, significant review by the Internal Revenue Service. They file some kind of a tax return every year. You know, the IRS knows who they are. You give a grant to them, and that's about all you have to have is a canceled check. If you go outside of those boxes, you can be looking at a 20% penalty and having to get the money back. And I see this a lot. Grants to another private foundation. If a private foundation makes a grant to a friend's private foundation and doesn't do um, the due diligence that's called expenditure responsibility, they have to get the money back and pay a 20% penalty for the amount of, of the amount of the grant. Um, if you make a grant to a orphanage in Africa, I had this case. Uh, the orphanage in Africa would have qualified as a charity in any country in the world. They made a grant to it and said, oh, we're helping, we're doing this wonderful charitable thing, but they weren't in box one, two, or three. So they had to try to get the money back and pay a 20% penalty. And it's this kind of technical detail in the grant making that can be very difficult if you don't have somebody who understands the rules and sets up a grant-making review process to avoid that pitfall. Um, probably the best practice there is that if you're going to say, well, we're only going to make grants to public charities in box one, two, or three, then probably the best practice is when that organization applies or you contact them and say, we'd like to make a grant to you, you require them to give you a copy of their IRS determination letter that says, yes, you are a 501c3 and you are not a private foundation because you're in box one, two, or three. That's probably the safest way. The other thing I would say is, if you're willing, I mentioned this before, the flexibility of private foundations. If you're willing to learn how to do expenditure responsibility, let me tell you very quickly what that is. If you want to make a grant to an organization that's not in box one, two, or three, you do a pre-grant inquiry. Can they do the charitable work I want to pay for? Yes. Then you enter into a written agreement where you earmark the funds only for that charitable purpose. And it has to have a lot of certain technical language in that, in that boilerplate of that letter. And then you get regular reports from that organization on how the money has been spent. And when you file your Form 990PF tax return, you, they ask you, did you make an expenditure responsibility grant? You say yes, and then you provide a short paragraph description of the status of that grant. If you're willing to do that and do it carefully, you can make a grant virtually to any, any organization anywhere in the world. You can make a grant to a casino in Monte Carlo if it's for a charitable purpose and you do all of those things. So it gives you, you could give a grant to the Chamber of Commerce, you could give a grant to IBM if it's for a charitable program, a charitable activity, and you're willing to do that extra work. So bottom line, there are not obvious pitfalls. You need, again, as we said earlier, you need to have either somebody on your board or an, uh, somebody at a family office or a part-time or full-time executive director be basically familiar with the rules and then have outside advisor, counsel, tax advisor um, when the yellow and red lights start flashing that you check with them first. John, thank you for that. Um, now, Victoria, would you like to tell us some of the pitfalls of how people get in trouble with donor advised funds or other funds? Sure, and I'm gonna be brief because I know we wanna leave time for questions. But you may not receive back from a donor-advised fund grant a more than incidental benefit. That's the rule that you need to know. If you're getting back tickets to the table at the gala, that's a more than incidental return benefit. 
You know how when you make a direct gift to an organization and you give them $10,000 and they say, thank you, your, your gift is deductible $8,000 worth because you're getting $2,000? Okay, that's a more than incidental return benefit. You can't do those kind of grants out of your donor-advised fund. That's a pretty easy rule to remember. If you're just making a straight grant, then it's fine to do it out of your donor-advised fund. When you get into the gala ticket thing, we call that bifurcation. It's not a good idea to do it out of your private foundation or out of your donor-advised fund, so don't try it. Um, membership benefits. You want to become a member of the symphony orchestra and get tickets back? Not a good idea. You shouldn't do it out of either your donor-advised fund or your private foundation because it could be self-dealing with some very narrow exceptions and it would be a problem to do it out of your donor-advised fund. If you represent charities, there are clear ways that you can create donor-advised fund membership categories and those of you who belong to organizations and want to make a membership gift, you can do it if they have a, a membership category that doesn't give rise to return benefits. Uh, I have an article if anybody wants it, we can talk about that afterwards, but definitely you should ask about that. Many cultural organizations now have donor advised fund membership packages where you get just incidental return benefits like the newsletter and free parking and things of that kind. Okay. Thank you. So now you can, I'm going to turn it over to questions right now. Um, uh, but I think you can see why so many people start going to community foundations for their grant making and for other services because if you have the time and, and the resources to really understand um, all of these aspects that both John and Victoria have talked about, uh, many people we find today don't have that. So they come to the community foundation and we have had occasionally situations where a donor will call us and say, I want to do X, Y, and Z with our donor advised fund, and we'll go back to their fund agreement and let them know whether they're within the guidelines of what they have set up as a fund agreement or not. So we try to keep our clients uh, making sure that they don't suffer any of these sort of negative tax implications. But now um, I understand someone has a question, and why don't we turn it over to Q&A. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first, I would like to mention, you know, one experience. Uh, when my company was sold, I had a lot of zero basis stock. I used that to pre-fund a donor-advised fund, which is represented here today by Nancy Keeling. Um, and that was the best use of the tax deduction because that was the year that you had significant income, which was going to go down very significantly. Uh, they offer, as you suggested, uh, you can involve your family in making decisions and how you make the money go out. In terms of pitfalls and downsides, there were two, one very minor, and that is sometimes if you've uh, said you're going to give some money to somebody, uh, Princeton University uh, is pretty good at it, but some of the others have a hard time uh, figuring out credit from the family fund, and it usually takes a phone call or a letter. But I would like you to talk about the uh, risk of fulfilling pledges, that if you make the pledge as an individual uh, and then you fulfill it through the family fund, the donor-advised fund, I think there may be some issues. The tax law applicable to private foundations states that you will have an act of self-dealing if you satisfy a legally binding pledge out of a private foundation because it is a more than incidental benefit. We do not yet have regulations for donor advised funds because the law uh, dealing with that issue came into effect in 2006 and Treasury has not yet issued regulations. However, by analogy, we expect that the regulations for donor advised funds will say if you're satisfying a legally binding pledge, it too is a more than incidental benefit. Therefore, we recommend to our clients not to enter into legally binding pledges, but to enter into letters of intent. 
A letter of intent says, I intend to give, without being legally bound, the sum of $2 million to Princeton University, and I may give it from any of my individual funds, my private foundation, or my donor-advised fund. Any am amount identified by me as coming from any of those sources will be credited toward this letter of intent. And I think that Princeton is very happy to have those letters of intent. They understand them completely. And every sophisticated public charity knows how to do a letter of intent. Where I've seen the problems, and you would not have that here because you have very good people, is that there are some places that compensate their, um, uh, their development people based on how much they get in binding amounts or amounts that can be counted. And so those folks have an incentive to make legally binding pledges. Or the organization's accountants might want to have legally binding pledges for matching grants or other reasons that you could ask about. But you need to say, I want to make a non-legally binding uh, letter of intent. I would only add that if you wanted to make a legally binding pledge to Princeton or any other charity and you really did think you were going to pay for it out of your private foundation, have the private foundation make the legally binding pledge, not you personally. Or have the sponsoring organization of the donor advised fund make the legally binding right. pledge. Yep. I thought it might interest some of the attendees, uh, my personal experience. I was associated with a community foundation actually as a supporting org, and we switched, for reasons I'll tell you, to become a private foundation. Uh, it, when I started my philanthropy, all my children lived in one neighborhood, and I, obviously it was small, the, uh, the fund, and it made total sense to be part of a community foundation because they were teaching uh, how to give, and we were all in one region. But as time went on, the fund became much more substantial, which affecting the economics of it. It's far less expensive to run a private foundation if you have size. I don't know exactly the break point, but I would say over a million dollars. And all the children moved away from that community. So we actually made the legal move from being a supporting organization to being totally independent private foundation. Mm -hmm. I also would say to you that I understand all these technical rules and we have lawyers and accounting firms to deal with this. The more interesting point, I would say, is how you engage your children to succeed in your philanthropic work. Mm -hmm. I work with a number of very wealthy families. I come out of the investment world. And that is really a, a wonderful challenge. And in our foundation, for instance, our meetings are run by my uh, children uh, on a rotating basis, and I run it every fifth year. It's a wonderful practice. But to have a dialogue with families who have been down this road, uh, whether it's the Rockefellers or others who are very good at this, that's a wonderful dialogue to know how to engage. And there's a book that uh, Charlie Collier, who had, had the role at Harvard, assistant to the president, called Families and Wealth is a great starting point. Uh, Charlie Collier, as everybody knows in this field, just retired, but he was a star and wrote. And there are other books that will help understand family dynamics, whether you're a, a, a community foundation or whether you're at a private foundation. One of the other incentives for us to be a private foundation was we wanted perpetuity of our assets. And if you're with a community foundation, eventually those assets will not be yours. Mm -hmm. They will go to that community foundation. If you, if, and I cared about that for perpetuity of our children and so on. So that's another consideration. Economics, size, knowledge, interest of your kids for perpetuity, and do you really care who controls these assets in the end? Mm -hmm. But it's not an easy matter to switch uh, there is an IRS form, but you need very good legal counsel to leave a, a community foundation 
and, and set up your own. It's too bad we didn't have time to get to succession today, but thank yes. you for raising it because maybe, maybe another time or next year we'll do a whole panel on all those succession issues. Say, I'm getting that thumbs up. I think that would be a great topic because we, we all have a lot to say. The Carnegie Foundation is 100 years old this year. So think of that being, and Rockefeller is about the same age. Think of perpetuity when we only have 100 years' experience with those foundations. We have lots of war stories. Historically, the states, the tax authorities in the various states have looked to patterns of charitable giving, among other factors, in uh, establishing or asserting domicile. Uh, uh, is it your view that that is still the case, notwithstanding some denials? Uh, and does the uh, medium of giving, private foundation, direct gifts, donor advised fund, community foundation, uh, play a role in uh, creating the fact pattern that can be used uh, against you? Hmm. you? You mean in the. the in the situation if you, say, lived in New York and you were retiring and you were going to spend m more time in Florida and you wanted to establish residency in Florida, in that kind of context, and, and you've run into the state, a state looking at your charitable giving patterns as to determine whether or not you're a resident? I've never heard of that before. Have you run into that? No, I haven't run into that. Um, I will say there are domicile issues at, at times with trusts. We generally form all of our private foundations as corporations, non-stock corporations, and community foundations are generally going to be corporations as well. I much prefer the corporation structure. I'm getting heads nodding because it's very clear of the domicile of the corporation. You're formed under the laws of a particular state. Other questions? Well, if we don't have any other questions, perhaps each of you would like to wrap up with a little bit about um, succession and sunsetting, since that was clearly a topic that uh, people are interested in. Just a teaser so that they come back next year. John? In the private foundation world, um, there is an ongoing uh, discussion, sometimes controversial, about uh, foundations in perpetuity versus uh, foundations that have our time limited. Um, when I was at the Council on Foundations, we were perfectly happy with either choice. Uh, if you felt very strongly you were going to create a foundation and you wanted to be in perpetuity, fine, wonderful. Um, if you created a foundation and you set it up and said, I want all the money spent in 10 years, fine. If that's your preference, great. Um, the controversy, and, and it's, it's uh, a little bit complicated to terminate a private foundation. You have to be careful, and you should get some good tax advice to do it right, because there's a, a nasty section 507 that if you don't do it carefully, you could have some issues. But um, basically, um, uh, what the controversy has come about is don around donor intent um, and particularly um, more conservative organizations have encouraged donors to have not to have foundations in perpetuity because if you want to make sure your funds are, are used for your own purposes you they say you should limit it to a certain time period and the farther away you get from uh, down the road, the more chances the money would be used, uh, the donor would roll over in his grave. That's, that's been the very interesting conversations about that. But that's a quick summary of the, what I've seen in the termination rule uh, area for private foundations. And for donor-advised funds, I would say you need to know before you start your donor-advised fund what the policy is of the sponsoring organization. Many community foundations say your donor advised fund can have two generations of advisors and then the funds go over into the general pool of the community foundation. Others say as long as there's a successor appointed, you can have successor advisors. Right. So know before you fund. Uh, and I think it's a very important point. Part of the community foundation model is really understanding what are you trying to accomplish. 
and it is best um, when you're looking for advice from experts where you are looking to make um, a contribution or a, dif or a difference in your local community. Um, also, when you just want to be part of a group of people. One of our most popular um, uh, project products is giving circles, where a group of funders get together and decide they want to form a giving circle around a particular initiative. And those fund agreements are very important because you can set them up the way you want to, um, whether it's numbers of generations or just two generations and the funds revert back to the foundation. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of flexibility, and what we are finding um, is that we have not yet uh, had any of our clients, our funders who've been with us, and we have more than 500 funders who have been with the foundation. Now, we're not that old. We're only 20 years old. So that's relatively young in the community foundation world. Uh, the other two community foundations, in uh, the large ones in Connecticut, are, are, have been around for a significantly longer period of time. So in our, we're, we're really adolescents in comparison to some of our, our peers. So we haven't yet uh, run into any issues with our funders not being happy with the way they've set up their fund agreements so that they're not getting, you know, so, and they, they continue to get what they want from the community foundation experience. Thank you for listening to the Reunion's 2012 seminar podcast on smart giving getting the most out of your philanthropy. If you have any questions about today's podcast or charitable planning in general, please call the Office of Gift Planning at 609-258-6318.